0: hey everybody this is the practical woodsman this week we're going to talk about gps a little bit going to talk about different types of fire setups survival shows emergency fishing kits food stick around everybody to The Practical Woodsman. I'm your host, Rut. How have you all been? I've been pretty good. Let's see, was it last weekend? Yeah, I think it was last weekend. I uh, grabbed my daughter, grabbed my, my pack, had a friend come down, and we went looking for this cave that I had spent uh, the night in many winters ago. So on Christmas night, 2008, my brother, who's a surveyor, told me about this cave that he had seen come across on some maps. And the Shawnee, American Indian, apparently spent a lot of time around these these caves and these stone structures and stuff. And So he said, let's go out there and try to find that. And uh, like I said, that was on Christmas night, 2008, and uh, we got started right about dark. And we... we eventually found that cave and we spent the night there one thing that was interesting about that was that when we got up the next morning having our coffee and stuff we were kind of exploring around this cave and uh, we found an engraving somebody had engraved in the cave that they stayed in that cave on Christmas night 1914 the year was that they had engraved and uh, that was really cool that almost 100 years had passed between the time that that fella, whoever he was, had stayed in that cave. And then, you know, 100 years pass, my brother and I come along and just by coincidence spend the night uh, on the exact same night in that cave. That was pretty cool. But so Anyway, I told my daughter about that, told my buddy about that. I said, we should just kind of spontaneously go out and try to find that, that cave again. And so, just going by memory, we went out there. And make a long story short, got dark on us. Couldn't see much. Flashlights weren't really penetrating. Didn't have the throw to really penetrate uh, the the woods back there. And it was it was a it was difficult because there was a lot of swampy area and cliff embankments. So you're kind of stuck between the cliff embankment and these great big huge swamp areas and then a creek on the far side and uh, pitch dark couldn't see much that night we we got turned around kinda got lost and uh, ended up just finding a dry spot getting a fire going and spending the night right there in the middle of the woods so we didn't actually get to find the cave unfortunately got my door open here and you can hear the birds outside it's spring it is uh, quickly on its way here so i hope that the birds and the the sounds outside don't bother you but i kind of like to keep the door open because it's so nice and pleasant outside yeah so that was my weekend last weekend and then oh and it was cold too it was cold today it's like 70 degrees here it's 73 what is 73 degrees fahrenheit in celsius 73 degrees Fahrenheit is about 22.78 degrees Celsius. Okay, so about 23 degrees Celsius. Very warm here, but last weekend it, it wasn't. Last weekend when uh, we got up that morning, it was about 20 degrees. So what's 20 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? 20 degrees Fahrenheit is minus 6.7 degrees Celsius. Okay, so almost minus 7 degrees Celsius. Did not have a shelter with us. Just had We just flopped down on the ground and uh, my daughter she's seven so we slept together I pulled her up close to me and I had a, a wool blanket and I had a down sleeping bag we both slept under there slept comfortable my buddy complained a little bit about waking up stiff from sleeping straight on the ground but I, I it was a fine night for me I had no complaints so I was happy to get out gonna go through some questions folks have had for me here lately and gonna address them briefly Somebody says, uh, I haven't seen you talking about GPS units. GPS units are not a substitute for maps. I know maps seem like ancient and who uses maps anymore and stuff like that. But you got to bear in mind that any electronics, anything that requires batteries and those sorts of things, you don't really want to depend, uh, throw your entire dependence upon. They're fine, uh, but they have a limited reliability factor built into them simply because of the the fact that they consume so much energy and depend on energy. So once you get into GPS units and stuff like that, then you got to start thinking about are you going to carry solar panels, how many uh, extra batteries you're going to carry, stuff like that. And so I don't like to depend on them. They can get damaged and broken and, and then not be any good for you so I much prefer maps I always try to download high-quality topographical maps for any region I'm gonna go into having said that I do have a couple of uh, GPS apps on my phone and here's something you should know about your smartphone they're not satellite phones the GPS that you use, for example, if you use maps on an iPhone or if you use uh, Google Maps or on your Android phone or whatever, the way those work is they work both by GPS and by phone signal combined. So, for example, when you're going to drive somewhere and you plug in a destination on your phone and you're driving using the GPS on your phone, it's using the phone signal from a tower at the same time combining that with GPS information. So you can't depend on your phone once you get out into the backcountry because if you're in true backcountry, you're going to lose your phone signal. In fact, you just got a plan on that. Once that happens, the GPS on your phone is going to be next to worthless. In order to get around that problem, what you can do is you can download certain apps that work strictly off gps so it doesn't matter if you have a phone signal or not and the way that these apps work the way i understand it is that you download the maps to your phone so they're saved to your phone they're not in the cloud or anything like that and then all that is required is the gps signal from the satellite to locate where you're at on the maps that you've already downloaded and already have saved to your phone so I do have a few apps downloaded to my phone that work that way and I do check in with them every once in a while when I'm way out in the middle of nowhere just to kind of verify that that I am where I think I am I don't keep them on I don't keep them running I don't use these apps that uh, check my location along the way that stay active or running in the background on my phone along the way. I don't do that. The people who do aren't anywhere where they need to worry about anything because because anywhere you can be where you never have to worry about losing a phone signal you're not in wilderness are you? You're not, you're not in backcountry. You're not anywhere remote. Not as long as you have a, a phone signal the entire time you're out there. That's not remote anything. So uh, if, you, if you have it on your phone running all the time, <laughs> I'll never forget when Apple Watch come out with their latest commercial. I think it was last year or two years ago. When, when the the Apple Watch come out, that supposedly works completely without your phone, so you can take phone calls on your phone, or you, you can take phone calls on your wristwatch and stuff like that. I'll never forget that in the commercial they had this guy running like in the Swiss Alps or something and a call comes in and he or she answers the call on his or her Apple Watch and I just thought well that's a bunch of horse, horse crap how in the world is that pers- person getting a call where they're at supposedly in the middle of the Swiss Alps just absolutely ridiculous nobody who goes out into the wilderness is fooled by things like that besides that what is the life of the battery within an, an Apple Watch? Isn't it something like eight hours or something like that? So what good is that going to do me out on a week-long backpacking trip? It's not going to do me any good. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so <laughs> if I were going to use something like that, it would, it would necessitate right that I carry pounds of other gear just to keep that watch powered. And it's not going to do me any good out there in the middle of nowhere where I've got no phone signal. It can't. It's not going to be getting the data that it needs in order for it to do me any good in the first place. So anyway, back to these GPS apps. There are some good ones that work strictly from the GPS capabilities of your phone. I do download those. I wish maybe I can get you some screenshots and show, show you... Those now, um, and like I said, I don't leave it on because if I were to leave it on, it would just suck my battery dry in a New York minute. So I can't leave them on. But what I might do is I might check with it two or three times a day as I'm traveling to gauge my progress along the trail or whatever. The problem with them is that they want your money, they want you to subscribe, and uh, none of the subscriptions I've ever seen have been worth. That cost. You know how you get around all of that? You learn to use a map. You learn to use a map, and you can download them off the internet, print them right off, throw them into a sandwich bag, print off five, man, stick one in your backpack, stick one in your cargo pocket, hand a couple out to your friends that are going to be there with you, and uh, then you're set. You you don't have to worry about anything. But a GPS unit, as nice as they sound, complicates, complicates your time out in the woods rather than contributes in any really practical way. I do have a few of those apps on my phone, but I don't subscribe to any subscription or anything like that. I use the free features of these GPS apps. And like I say, it's really it's just for reference. I check in with them from time to time, and that's about the extent that I use them and and they are useful in that way somebody asked me about torch fires do I ever use a do I ever build torch fires out in the woods these are also known as Swedish fires I'll try to get some pictures to throw up here and show you show everybody what I'm talking about for those of you who are watching I realize many of you are only listening Swedish fire or a torch fire is where you take a log and you cut it um, without splitting it you you make cuts down the center of it. so let's say you cut a log let's say it's about oh yay long and you set it up on its end like like you use it as a stool right or a seat and now you make some cuts down the center of it like a pie and then what you do is you get a fire going in the middle of that thing and it burns from the middle out so, my answers to whether I ever use a torch fire is no. I never build a Swedish fire. I don't need to. Remember, I'm the practical woodsman. What type of fire do I build? Always. The type, the way I structure my fires, always, is in a TP fashion. So, I always, if the ground is not dry, I always set down, maybe... I'll cut two, three logs. Let me show you what I cut with. I got two cameras set up here. So this is a gomboy. And uh, this is my preferred thing to carry out in the woods. Uh, an important thing to keep in mind with these gomboys. I'm showing this on the camera all right, for all you listening. Is that the way that the teeth are designed on this thing. And this thing, it just looks like a great big old folding buck knife really with teeth and they cost all about 80 American dollars I reckon the thing to keep in mind with these gomboys is that the way that the teeth are arranged is not to cut on the push they cut on the pull. so you got to keep that in mind that as you can see here the blades are not super thick and robust so you have to know the proper way to use these things in order not to break the blade out but as long as you bear in mind the way it works then you never have to worry about breaking the blade but I cut firewood with these things all live long day they work very very well and so because of the way that the teeth remember it's not cutting on the push it's cutting on the pull. so I'm very easy with it on the push and then I kinda bear down on it with the on the pool. And so in that way I'm cutting. Um, I, I'm maximizing my energy and the energy that I'm putting into cutting firewood, right? Imagine that I'm just bearing down on this thing the whole time as I'm cutting. Well first of all I'm gonna break the blade out. Second thing is I'm using twice as much energy unnecessarily all I have to do is let it move forward I don't have to push it forward the me bearing down on it is when I'm pulling on the pool right that's the only time I'm I have to put any energy into it and by doing that I maximize my energy and I don't wear myself out unnecessarily so the reason I like these so much is that they they weigh a fraction of what these boreal 21's weigh this is the boreal 21 You can see the size difference there. Now you'd think that these Borel 21s would be the thing you really want, right? If you're out in the woods and you want to do some serious cutting, you'd think, boy, I want this Borel 21. Let me fold that out and show you how that works. Well don't get me wrong, it is an exceptional, exceptional design and an exceptional it's just an exceptional piece of gear. And yeah, it can take an abuse and it it cuts on the, both the push and the pull. But this weighs a fraction of it, this gomboy. And I can cut anything I can cut with this Boreal 21, I can cut with this gomboy. Folds down and it just slips in and you forget it's even there. That's how wonderful it is, the gomboy. The Boreal 21 is a lot heavier um, and takes up a lot more space in a pack so even though it's a wonderful beautiful design I would prefer and and I do these days save the boreal 21 for um, I keep it like in my truck I keep it for base camps stuff like that anywhere I can go where weight is not a concern but like in a bug out bag or a backpacking trip where you're going to be traveling, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 miles. This gomboy will do everything you want it to do. And I, I do this, I tie on some paracord to, to the ends of all of my gear. And then when I get into camp, I can hang things in an organized way and, and have it right there where I can just reach out and get it. So, um What was the question? Oh, okay. The the question was about building fires. Remember, I'm the practical woodsman. And what that means is that I never do anything just because. There are lots of elaborate fires that you can build. But then the question is, why? Is it necessary? And the answer to that almost always is no. Now, let me show you this book here. This is the uh, the very famous camping and wilderness survival book, more like a encyclopedia, by Paul Torrell, and I've had this for years. But I want to show you here in this book. It shows you, and and I I've always enjoyed looking through at things like this. You know, at just the wonderful ideas that the book can give you, but when it comes down to it. You only need to know one effective way of building a fire. And once that works for you, why do you need to know other ways of building a fire? So a lot of folks say, well, you know, you need to learn all these different things and you got to practice them all the time and get good at them. Why? Why do you have to do that if your go-to is effective all the time? Why would you need to know another way of building a fire or another way of arranging your fire to get it to take off? So, I wanted to show you in this book here, in the fire making section, um, it does cover various types of fire, like fire builds, right? So, right here, I don't know if you folks can see that, talks about the caterpillar fire. And it's, I mean, it is complex, man. You gotta cut the logs just right. You gotta set up a structure. You gotta find stones that are just the right size. You gotta believe it or not. This picture I'm looking at. For those of you who are who are just listening, uh, I'll try to describe it. This caterpillar fire has like three logs stacked on top of each other, held together by stakes that are posted in the ground to either side of them. And it depends on you knowing the direction the wind is blowing. that's easy enough ain't it but in what universe does the wind only blow in one direction in what universe have you ever existed in does the blow does the wind blow from one direction only I have never seen the wind just blow from one direction only it's always blowing around right it may primarily be coming from for example the West but that's not all the wind does. The wind blows around. It comes from all directions. So uh, this sort of thing is not practical at all. This is something that a person would build just because they got nothing better to do, man. I'm telling you, they got nothing better to do. So I don't go around building caterpillar fires. Let me see what else we got here. Here they've, they show platform fires built on humid or wet ground. And then they've got this really elaborate platform Built there. It's not just one platform. This person has gone out and let's see, sawed off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight logs of the exact same length, and then they've stacked like 12 or 15 smaller logs on top of that, and then built their fire on top of that. Do you know how much preparation time that is? That's an hour's worth of preparation time, right? Let me tell you what I'd do. I'd saw off three logs that are the nearest to me set those down on the ground and build my fire 10 minutes 10 minutes I have a fire you want to do something like this. you're you're looking at an hour just to get everything prepared for the fire who's got that kind of time let's see here the hunters fire again two logs and then you got all the the hot coals in between them and it's they're kind of set at a V again too much uh, too it's pointless pointless to even bother with that. Just get your fire going. Throw down a a simple, simple platform. I'm talking maybe two or three logs. That's enough to get your fire roaring. And then then it doesn't matter how wet the ground is underneath those logs. Once they burn through, the fire will be going well enough that uh, it will dry the ground out and everything will burn fine so anyway my point is you see all these elaborate fires in this book and yeah that's that's wonderful it's wonderful to know that people have come up with those highfalutin types of fires but um, they're completely unnecessary you build in a TP formation lightest to the heaviest that's all it takes that's all it takes so why does it have to be any more complicated than that the answer is that it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that people like to make it more complicated than that for their own reasons but for survival for comfort for getting what you need done in the woods uh, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than a than a tp style fire and like i said what you're doing is you're going the very lightest to the very heaviest And you want lots of light stuff before you start putting on the heavy stuff. But you build that way, you'll have an all-night fire. So there's my answer. I do not build Swedish fires or torch fires or any type of, uh, you know, these log cabin type build fires. None of these things. I don't spend any more time or effort on things than I need to spend so i reckon you could say i don't unnecessarily put in time or effort pointlessly into things i'm looking to maximize my efforts and time if i'm going to spend five minutes on a on a thing out in the woods i want every second of those five minutes to be used constructively effectively same thing in my energy i'm going to dedicate 10 minutes to something and out in the woods well, that's energy I want that energy to be used effectively so in a show not too awful long ago I was talking about hunting how hunting is not gonna does not contribute to an effective to a practical approach to surviving out in the wilderness you don't have the energy you don't have the time to go around hunting or to building traps from scratch and these sorts of things and so my argument was, a person has to get comfortable with eating insects, worms, crickets, grasshoppers, insects, because it's the only way that you can put the least amount of energy and time into the thing and get the most returns back. Hunting requires a lot of time and energy and very few returns. You know, I. Grew up uh, hunting with my uncles and stuff, and of course they still hunt. Uh, it's not a big, it's not something I'm big on, but I, I appreciate it, and I always appreciate getting some of the game when they have an excess. You know, I sure love to fill my freezer up with squirrels and groundhogs and all sorts of things like that. So I'm, I'm I love hunters, and I love that I know people who do hunt. Um, and I have hunted in the past, but to be honest with you, it just bores the snot out of me. Uh, I, it's not something that I love. Uh, not like fishing. I love fishing. Fishing can be meditative and relaxing and most beautiful part of the day. And uh, relatively, the energy and time that you put into fishing, you can get a lot of returns back for relatively small amounts of energy and time not really true with hunting <laughs> with hunting you know you can be out all week uh, not even get not even get a single deer or anything like that but this person says you know after some reflection I went back and watched that whole discussion again that I my, my whole argument about it, learning to, to get comfortable with eating bugs and stuff like that if, if you're serious about wanting to survive the person says, I wasn't sure I entirely agreed with what you said as it contradicted a lot of my long held beliefs especially catching wild game, he says but then he says, after a fair bit of thought and recalling my own experiences of living off the land I'm going to have to concede and agree with you even fishing can be a time and calorie intensive exercise he then brings up this uh, survival show called Alone Have any of you watched that show alone? He says it appears to be pretty realistic. The people who have lasted the longest are the ones who have managed to either bring down big game or come up with a calorie-efficient fish-gathering system. Bug and plant-gatherers don't go the distance. What is not happening? What is not happening on the show alone That would be happening to you in real life. So think about the show alone. If that's a show you watch, I don't watch it. I don't watch survival shows. But let's say that you do watch the show alone. I want you to think about the reality of their circumstances that does not reflect a reality that you would be dealing with in a true survival situation. Have you figured it out yet? The actors or the participants on the show alone are stationary. That's the difference. The players aren't traveling five to ten miles every day, are they? They're not traveling at all. They're, they're, they have a base camp and they're working around that base camp. They're not on their way to anywhere. They're in a single spot, more or less. They set up those base camps, and then they try to survive there. So this does not in any way whatsoever mirror a real-life wilderness survival scenario. In a real-life wilderness survival scenario, you're trying to get out. Or you're trying to stay hidden, right? You're trying to stay away from civilization, but in order to stay hidden you can't stay in one place for two weeks you still have to move you're still traveling so because you're either trying to get out or because you're trying to stay hidden this necessarily means traveling distances on foot and camping in brand new locations and environments almost every night traveling on foot takes vast amounts of time and uses a lot of calories so whatever a person's game plan is for survival in a real survival situation it has to be one that fuels the energy required for travel and costs very little in time for example I can build 15 traps and set up a trap line and go around checking it that's five hours of my day just right there now how am I ever supposed to travel in a meaningful distance before sunset in time to be able to set up a brand new camp and get to bed before 2 a.m. remember one of my primary goals should be covering distance each day I should be factoring in travel each day in any imaginary survival situation I'm dreaming about while I'm lying in bed at night. Well, I'm thinking about survival and how cool it is and wow, how cool the woods are. How cool would it be for me to be out in the woods surviving? If you're not factoring in travel every day, you're 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 leaving out a really important part of any formula. What I'm saying is that while you're lying there coming up with all these wonderful imaginative ways that you're going to survive, if it doesn't include travel on foot and new camping locations almost every night, then the whole thing, whatever you're imagining is a bunch of horse poo. It's a bunch of horse poo. It has to factor in travel. So what is the only way that I can travel and pay for the energy that required to travel at the same time? Eating bugs along the way. That's the only way. Now, does that mean that if I happen to see a squirrel up in a tree, I'm not going to try to knock it out of the tree with a rock? No, but I'm not going to dedicate my day to hunting squirrels. If by a fortunate stroke of luck, I come across a squirrel, happy me. But only within the context of did this happen casually as I was traveling along and taking advantage of you know pushing a log over that's the extent of the energy required to fuel your fuel you for that day you're walking along you see a nice juicy log you push it over and now look at all that stuff that's underneath that log all those worms and crickets and that's your that's your fuel right there that's your protein that's your meal Man, you slurp that stuff up and you keep going You come across to another log or something like that, kick it over, eat what's in there. I mean, surely you remember when you were kids. How hard was it for you to find a fishing worm? It wasn't hard at all. Well, nothing has changed. As easy as it was for you to find those things when you were a kid, it's still that easy. Only the only difference now is that you got to be willing to eat them. Now, one thing you could do is you could collect a bunch of that stuff. Bunch of crickets, grasshoppers, stuff like that, you know, te- tear their wings off, tear their legs off, stick them in your pouch or whatever. And then you can fry them up when you get into camp that night. But that's the only thing that makes sense. Like I said, I can go around building all these traps and checking it and everything. That's my whole day right there. One of my primary goals should be covering distance each day. I must be factoring that into whatever any realistic, practical plan for survival in the wilderness so any premise for wilderness survival that does not factor in long distance uh, distances of travel on foot most days is just horse poo there's no such thing in real life of wilderness survival scenarios that involve staying at base camps for multiple days and nights let alone for an entire month a real wilderness survival situation inherently involves a person trying to get out of the wilderness and back to civilization or of trying to stay hidden staying hidden means staying mobile and the only way to do either one of these things is by traveling distances on foot nearly every day so I want you to realistically imagine what that implies it means that every night I have to find shelter or create shelter in a brand new location every night I have to attempt to get as rested as possible don't I why is that <laughs> because because everything I'm doing depends on me being, me having energy to do whatever I need to do next every morning I have to break down camp and prepare to travel as many miles as possible and that night I'll have to set up camp all over again and go through all this work again and every day along my journey, I have to be on the lookout for and take advantage of easily obtained calories in order to fuel all this stuff and keep me moving forward and hopefully out base camps, such as uh, the ones you see on the survival show alone, are great for hunting game because they're for leisure and fun they're not for real life survival scenarios nothing that does not include traveling long distances on foot every day can be a true mirror of what true wilderness survival scenarios are like by the way I do carry a small fishing kit with me everywhere I go I want to show that off today I carry one of these in my backpacking gear And I also keep one in my go bag, you know, my emergency bag. And uh, for those of you who are just listening, what I'm holding here is an Altoids tin, and it has uh, some Gorilla tape wrapped around it, just to kind of keep it closed. the The wonderful thing about these Altoids cans is that if I need to build, if I need to make some uh, char cloth, uh, I can do so very easily with one of these Altoids cans and my campfire just poke a little hole in the top and there you go can make some very easy char cloth for those of you who don't know what char cloth is we'll talk about it on another episode so here's the altoids can this is my fishing and sewing kit all right so this is not just my fishing kit it's also my sewing kit so what i have here i'll try to describe for all of you that aren't watching is i have in my little fishing kit. Oh, I'd say probably 300 feet of 10-pound test line. It's either 10-pound test line or 8-pound test line fishing line here. And I've just got it rolled into a circle and I've taken some tape and that holds that tight. Plenty of fishing line for me to build a cane pole out of and to fish with. Now another interesting thing about this uh, fishing line here is that I can use that as sewing thread as well And let me show you my sewing needles I keep them in this so if I needed to sew I could use my fishing line as my sewing thread remember this is all emergency stuff ladies and gentlemen we're talking about emergency stuff here why is that important? it's important because emergency stuff does not have to be luxurious You're you're getting by. We're surviving. We're not living like kings out there. Is it ideal for me to sew up my shirt using fishing line? No, but I'm not after ideal. What I'm after is practicality, getting by. Will it do the job? Yes, it'll do the job. And I've got several different types, several different sizes of sewing needles here. And again, this is either eight pound test or ten pound test. That's enough for me if I catch something bigger than just a little bluegill or something like that. It'll do the job, but it'll also catch smaller fish too. I have several artificial worms in here and these of course would be for catching larger fish. I can catch a bass on these purple rubber worms very easily I've learned from experience. And I've always had a lot of success with this color, these dark kind of purple rubber worms so I got three of those in there now what if I want to do some kind of like passive fishing where I'm not sitting there at the line all the time well I got this little tiny bobber and this little tiny bobber is enough for me to put on the line what would I do by the way with this fishing line I just cut myself a long staff make a cane pole did you never fish with a cane pole when you were a kid they're as effective as anything else So, tie this to the end of a cane pole, put a hook on, and my bobber. And then I can kind of sit there, kind of casually and leisurely, and just wait for the fish to come to me. Of course, if you're using a bobber and fishing that way, these rubber worms aren't going to do the trick. You're going to need live bait for that. But like I said, easy enough to find. You just push over a log or flip a rock over, and there's your lunch for the day, ladies and gentlemen. It's your lunch. And it's also your your bait for fishing. So these little bobbers cost nothing whatsoever, you know, don't take up any space. Uh, here I've got just a leftover striker for a flint. It, it fits in there, that's why I put it in there. Um, here I've got a pencil that I've broken into. And this is for if I have to write a note or something on a scrap of paper and pin it to a tree. I've got these in my little altoids tin, but also around the uh, and the reason why I cut into it so it fit, but also you know I can whittle that with my pocket knife, and uh, and have two pencils in case I lose one. So I don't absolutely have to sew anything with this fishing line. I can; it'll work fine. But because I've already got these pencils in there anyway, what I've done here is I whittled a bit of that pencil away and then I wrapped probably oh I don't know hundred yards of thread around that pencil and you see it doesn't take up any more width than the pencil itself because I whittled a section of the pencil away so there I've got plenty of sewing thread for emergencies as well Uh, I have various hooks and various hook sizes now what I've learned about these uh, hooks that are about this size here I can catch huge fish with these but you don't want to be dependent on only catching the big fish you want to be able to catch the small fish too but I've learned that I can catch these small bluegills and those you know, much smaller fish, sunfish, with hooks about this size as easily as I catch the large fish and it's been my experience that it's much easier to catch how do I say this it's been my experience that it's much easier to catch a small fish on a hook this size than it is to catch a large fish on a much tinier hook so this is kinda like right in the middle that'll catch me plenty of different types of fish different sizes and those sorts of things how many hooks do I have in there I have five so five actually I got six six fish and hooks why do you want to carry Plenty of fish and hooks they get jammed up in uh, weeds they get jammed up on logs and stuff like that and you'll lose them you'll break your line you'll lose hooks so you want to have plenty of that uh, if you lose a couple hooks you're not completely screwed now I carry a couple of these things here this is just so that the line doesn't get all tangled and everything like that again they fit in there and so I go ahead and put them in and finally I've got some, some lead weights that you can put on your line. And then I've got a curved sewing needle in there. So these uh, Altoid tins are uh, just really wonderful. They take all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, especially fishing hooks, you don't want them out where they can jam you or jab you or poke you or anything like that, so it's nice to keep them in a tin. I ha, I've made charcoal off many times using these Altoid tins, but they're, they're so nice and compact, you know, you can throw those into a pack, into an emergency pack, and, and just forget about them. And then, should an emergency arise, you've got them. It's there if you're following water out in the wilderness you'll have lots of opportunities for fishing that does not require a lot of energy fishing does not require a lot of energy it it can be a passive activity it's always a good idea to have uh, an emergency fish kit I have an I, I have this one which I carry in my backpack and pack I have another one just like it has the same stuff in it that I keep in my go bag which is an emergency bag if the world goes to heck, in a handbasket. I can grab it, and I can get out of here, and I can go anywhere. Let's talk about food for exa- for a second. Somebody says, a topic I'd like to see discussed are what types of lightweight, high-calorie foods one can pack that will sustain life along with the very important element of water. All right. So let me show you some things here. I don't have a lot to show you right now. Just some basic stuff. But... The thing to keep in mind with food is this. What you are interested in is the lightest food you can find that has the highest calorie count. That's it. That's it. Walk around the grocery store. Look at the foods and you think, for example, wow, that'd be great for backpacking. I see a lot of people like um, a lot of other quote-unquote survival wilderness guys show off these, these packets of food that they just go to the grocery store and get for like a dollar and they go, wow, look at this, this is great, look at this, how easy, you just add water and it's a delicious meal. It is a delicious meal, but it only contains like 120 calories and it requires preparation. It requires preparation and you're only getting 120 calories out of it. You want your meals to be close to around 400 calories per meal at least because everything out in the wilderness requires much more calories than what you're used to at home or even at work even working out in the gym you're not going to burn as many calories as you will out in the woods everything is burning calories so that is the the primary thing to keep in mind with any food that you're going to pack in an emergency pack like a go bag or in any wilderness backpack lightest weight most in calories that's what you want so i've seen a lot of folks uh you know pack things into the woods that they think is great because it's convenient and all that but then you look at the calorie count and the the there's no calories in it so yeah it's wonderful it's wonderful you've got that little chicken rice meal you just add water to but you know what really sucks you're only getting 150 calories out of it Number two thing I'd like to tell you about, whatever you carry, you must make sure to carry plenty of high calorie foods that do not require any preparation whatsoever. So it is wonderful for you to carry like, uh, let me show you, these freeze dried meals, like mountain house meals and stuff like that, that you can get from Walmart, you can get them from REI and stuff like that. These are wonderful chock-full of flavor, usually high-calorie, wonderful. You see that? That's freeze-dried. It's powder. It's got some freeze-dried stuff in it. Weighs nothing. That's wonderful. But what do I need in order to eat this? I need to have a fire. I need to have boiling water in order for this to be palatable at all what if I'm not in a position to be able to make a fire or get my canister stove going it's two degrees outside my canister stove won't work this doesn't do me any good can't get a fire going winds blowing like a hundred miles an hour I can't get a fire going just gotta get a shelter up race into my shelter and hunker down for the night if if that's true and it's you know zero degrees way below freezing and I can't get a fire going my canister stove won't work what good is this going to do me it's not going to do me any good this is a mistake this is a big mistake I made the very first time I went out on a backpacking trip was that all of my food was stuff like this that required preparation that'll kill you that'll kill you it'll really put you out so you want to make sure That in any type of setup that you have, you always carry plenty of food that requires no preparation. Trail mix, remember, this is not like eating at the Ritz. We're, We're not concerned about eating like we're at the Ritz. What we're concerned about is getting calories into us. So trail mix is wonderful. Contains a lot of different things. Always have trail mix with you. Yes these things are fine to take these freeze, uh, freeze-dried freeze meals you just can't depend on them entirely you know make your suppers these freeze-dried meals but have plenty of stuff that requires no preparation whatsoever Re- doesn't even require water you can just open the bag and start eating it and get calories into you of course, ramen noodles ramen noodles are fantastic and I'll tell you why they weigh nothing 370 calories per container per, per pack this is one little package of ramen noodles now on a really hungry day on a hungry night I could easily eat two packs of this how many calories would that be that's almost 800 calories ladies and gentlemen two tiny packages that cost nothing that weigh nothing they weigh like styrofoam chock full of carbs, chock full of calories, I'll tell you what, these things are hard to beat. No they're not going to make for the most spectacular YouTube videos when you're showing everybody hey look I'm surviving out here, no they're going to want to see you cutting up a steak throwing it on a a cast iron frying pan that weighs 80 pounds uh, with onions and taters and all sorts of things that's what sells right that looks fantastic what you don't know is that they're only 10 feet in the woods their cars parked right there or their house is just right up on the hill they're not presenting any type of reality to you this is reality right here you're hiking 10 miles ramen noodles get the job done these freeze-dried meals get the job done but again what is the problem with the ramen noodles uh, more or less they require preparation. Now, I've seen people open up the pack, pour the, the seasoning in, crush those up and just eat them like that. So, you know, that Raymond noodles are better designed for a true survival situation than anything else. Here's what I like to do with my Raymond noodles. I stick them into a, uh, a bag, two packs at a time because I can eat two, two of these easy. Easy when I've had a long day. So I like to just take everything out of its original packaging usually. Taters, dried taters, just add water. Again, what's the problem with them? The problem is you must be able to get a fire going, you must be able to cook. So never forget the importance of not relying entirely on this stuff. This stuff is for when everything's going right. Stuff you can eat without any preparation whatsoever is the stuff that you you can depend on no matter what. And with that in mind, I'd like to tell you about um, instant oatmeal. What I do is I put instant oatmeal in these little snack packs. It'll hold three or four of these packs. So three or four of these instant oatmeal packs will fit into a snack pack. So you don't have to carry a hundred of these, you just carry one of these and you pour out what you want and that does it. Now the reason I like these so much is because they got a lot of sugar in them, a lot of calories, a lot of good stuff in there too. You keep your regular out in the woods and uh, you just can't beat them. Another great thing about these oats is that you can pour some of these oats into your mug and then just pour in water. You don't have to cook them, just pour in some water. Mix it around, eat it like cold cereal. And it's delicious. It'll give you lots of calories. Oh, by the way, this instant oatmeal is uh, 160 calories per packet. And these packets are quite small. These are not huge packets. Think about that. 160 calories per packet. That is fantastic. Because I could easily eat two of these packets, and now what have I done? I'm almost to 400 calories right there to say the required preparation is really not fair because just pouring some water in your mug is not really preparation in my opinion but there you go there's some ideas and of course I always carry some teas some powders that I can pour into my water bottle I get tired of just drinking water just plain water any type of powdered water flavoring is nice right here i've got gatorade zero i'll tell you another thing these are nice and not just for getting tired of drinking water but let's say that you have to pull water out of a a source that is kind of doesn't taste the best yeah so you've boiled it you know it's clean you know i mean you know it's safe to drink but it's still kind of cloudy and it still kind of has a funny taste to it you can pour some of these in there and mask mask any kind of uh, negative taste that they might have so those are some of my food ideas now food is something that you you know can always there's always more to talk about when it comes to food so we'll talk about it more than a future date so oh one last thing these are buoyant cubes i always take buoyant cubes with me why do i do that because on a really cold night, nothing is quite as good as a boiling cube. You just heat up some water in your kettle, put this in your mug, put a single boiling cube in your mug, fill it up with hot water, boiling water, mix that all around, and then you've got this warming broth to warm up your body before you go to bed at night. But more than that, you can make soups and stews as long as you have boiling cubes you know stone soup you know what that is it's just soup that you throw anything you got into so as long as you're carrying boiling cubes you can make a soup over your fire with whatever scraps of whatever you've got out there you got some wild edibles throw them in you got a squirrel that you killed with a rock throw some of the squirrel in um, you've got some leftover beef jerky throw the beef jerky in and you can have a wonderful stew out in the woods these boy cubes take up no room they, they weigh nothing but man what a wonderful thing to have out in the back country so that's our show today here this week ladies and gentlemen I appreciate you joining me I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and uh, I hope you all join me for the next episode I think what I'd like to talk about in the next episode is bug out bags or, you know, emergency bags, just something you can just grab and go. There's a lot to to talk about there. So uh, until then, take care and I've enjoyed talking to you this week.